0: This interview was recorded on October 5th, 2020. Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub. And in this episode of the Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Dion Beatson, Based in Sydney, Dion is a software engineering team leader with over 20 years experience in the industry. He has worked for and led teams at big companies from News Corp to William Hill and Yahoo. And he is currently head of software engineering at MNF Group, a cloud communications software and service provider based in Australia and New Zealand. You can follow him on Twitter at Dion Beetson and check out his website at DionBeetson.com and his blog at blog.DionBeetson.com. Dion is the author of the book, Leading Software Teams with Context, Not Control, Effective Practices for Creating Alignment and Engagement Within Software Teams. In the book, Dion aims to help software engineering team leaders learn reusable practices that can help with team effectiveness and alignment and achieve greater efficiency in their leadership roles. In this interview, we're going to talk about Dion's background and career, professional interests, his book, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience as a self-published book author. So thank you, Dion, for being on the LeanPub Front Matter podcast.
1: Uh, Thanks for having me. I always like to
0: start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you first became interested in computers and programming.
1: Yeah, of course. Um, maybe not. Well, I started I started, uh, I started my, my development, I guess, um, habit or hobby uh, back in Perth. Um, uh, about uh, maybe twenty years ago, um, sort of at the end of high school, I wasn't one of those people that was that was coding at uh, the age of seven or, or eight. <laughs> that still impresses me. when want to hear those stories? And uh, yeah, I guess I I, I was I, I followed that sort of I guess you call it typical boring um, career progression that some people might call it. It wasn't boring for me. What I mean by that is I started as a as a developer um, over in Perth, into a senior developer, moved into a lead engineer um, when I came to Sydney. And, uh, and then moved into like engineering manager, head of engineering, um, in, um, in Sydney, where I'm based at the moment. Um, I said it's boring cause it's sort of the one career path you would typically follow say 15 or so years ago. And I guess if you look at the, the tech industry, these days uh, there's so many different career paths that you can follow, uh, as a software developer, whether you want to stay in a technical track or the, or the people management track, uh, but in saying that I, um, I'm don't, no regrets. <laughs> I, I do enjoy it. Um, but the, I guess, the reason, the reason I enjoyed it is because, um, I guess like a probably a lot of developers, um, <laughs> you work on, you work on all these platforms as you are, uh, as you go through your career in different companies and the sort of outside of your control is the life of those platforms. Um, they, whether it's through acquisitions, through changing in business priorities that platforms get shut down, um, all sort of shut down and decommissioned. And it's mostly out of the control of the people that are on those teams. And it's a little bit frustrating, a bit sad at the same time, all these many years and years of work that I would put into it, or people on my team would put into it all of a sudden for it to, to disappear. Yeah. Um, and that's sort of what got me into into the leadership, into leadership space where I was trying to find a way to – do something that would live on past decisions that were outside of my control. Um, So that's why I say that going into management and leadership for me wasn't boring because it was a way for me to try to build cultures within teams around um, how teams learn and how they're engaged and motivated. Um, Because then if the the platforms were shut down or they moved into different organizations, hopefully they learned something, picked up something that they could carry across into their own career um for yeah. many years to come so yeah it's um that's sort of where i'm and as i'm um, based in sydney at the moment i'm um, working at a company called um you actually pronounced it correctly which is surprising because most people can't i'm um, oh. called mnf group um we're a tele it's very what hard do most to say. people say it's like, <laughs> like n nmf group it's like oh, okay. it doesn't really pass the pub test um, <laughs> sometimes it's hard to pronounce but uh, yeah we're a telecommunication provider uh, first time I've been in telco, I uh, definitely try to jump into a different industry for every job I move into. Uh, it's a bit stressful sometimes because you've got to learn everything from scratch, but it's obviously the, the skills you've had previous to that, that sort of carry across. But telecommunication is interesting, probably one of the most technical fields I've been into. Um, by no means an expert, long way to go, but it's um, definitely keeping me on my toes to try and understand both the tech and um, and obviously lead the, lead the team that we've got over here, which is based in um, Sydney, Melbourne, uh, and a small team just, uh, over in Manila, about 15 or so people in Manila. Okay. Okay.
0: Yeah. Thanks very much for sharing that. Um, you mentioned career paths, um, and, uh, you know, there are many different career paths people can take in, in, uh, software engineering. And one of the questions that, that I always like to ask people who who, you know, are working in, in this space is if you were starting out now and, and, and people who did a computer, a computer science degree, like you did, if you were starting out now with the intention of having the career you've got would you do a full computer science degree or would you start out just you know learning on your own
1: given, given 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 all yeah.
0: the tools and stuff that are available now they just there's so many you know, things out there ago. yeah you can you yeah. can
1: pretty much learn anything you want online now which is amazing if you've got the motivation um well secretly i so i finished high school and went straight to uni but secretly actually really just didn't enjoy university. I thought it'd be amazing. I could do what I wanted to do, learn computer programming. Um, but when I got there, I was like, this is just like an extension of um, school and it, I didn't really enjoy it. So after about six months, I um, I decided to, well, actually, well, maybe about a year actually decided to go and grab a full-time job in programming. So I'd been doing programming onto the side for about two years and studied university part-time um i had a uh, a supportive uh mom who said just finish just finish uni down just just, just finish it but i uh, so i did that part-time it took about six or seven years in the end so it took a lot longer but i um i managed to work and uh that's where you, i don't know if you agree but that's where you sort of learn the most amount of things like uh, the amount i learned in the first say five years six years of work compared to six years of study was um just uncomparable like uh, i just learned Leap, was leaps and bounds ahead of what I learned. So I, I guess I really sort of leaped or jump started my, my career, being able to get all those many years of experience um, while studying. Um, but I guess, would I do it again? It's a good question. Um, I went back into the post a while later and I sort of loved it because I was the youngest person in the class and everyone else was um, about 40, 50 years old and I was just sitting there just absorbing all the information from everyone. So I enjoyed that a lot more. But an undergrad wasn't the most exciting. Um, so I would probably do it again. Maybe where I, what I would do differently next time um, is I would definitely, um, I would definitely stay in the career, stay what I've done. I would definitely travel overseas and work overseas earlier. Well, I didn't even do it, but I, I moved to Sydney. That was my extent and that was a great move. I've enjoyed it. loved love the city, but I would definitely go get some experience in um, whether that's over in uh, the West coast or East coast of um of the U.S. or maybe maybe over in, um, in London somewhere, but I think that would have probably helped me a bit more. Uh, it it seems to you get some amazing companies over there with some amazing scale that is hard to get in Australia. Uh, it's getting a little bit better, but we're uh, we'll never be at we'll never be at that level of uh, as as those sort of those sort of countries. But I would probably try to stick through my degree mainly because it was a personal challenge. I and mean, every now and then you look back and you go, oh well, I remember learning about this very high-level thing back in the day, and it, it sort of does come back. I think database normalization was something that springs to mind. I was like, Oh, I remember learning about that. <laughs> Still had to go back to the books, but you're right. There is so many things online that you can basically learn for free. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. Learn at a very low cost, right? at a 30, $40 monthly subscription. Um, and you can, Learn far more than what I believe a degree will offer you. Obviously, a bit biased there. That's yeah, my no, opinion. I should say. No, no, yeah. Thanks
0: very much for sharing that. And I really like to hear uh, people have uh, sort of clear, clear, and strong opinions about things. I actually didn't know that that you uh, worked while you were studying uh, for your undergraduate degree. Um, uh, with regards to whether I agree, or I, I you know my position. I I studied English. I'm Re- Lean Pub's resident non-programmer. So although I do, do some programming and stuff like that, um, I I would I was never I didn't go to university with the intention of like getting trained for a job. Um, yeah, uh, and um, you know it ended up working out great. I became an investment banker after <laughs> getting a doctorate in English literature, kind of thing. Uh, but yep. I can say like the kinds of things you learn when you're doing a job are different than the kinds of things that you learn when you're studying something formally at university. They're just two, two very different things in my opinion. And um, uh, I mean, I've, I've seen like our, you know, I've worked with a lot of programmers uh, over the years and mostly what I've heard from people is like, they, 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 whether they like their university experience or not, they do talk about how like actually working for a company is when they, they really
1: learn. Yeah, no, spot on. Learn, it's like, it's, it's all the people, people you work with, right? It's all yeah. those different uh, experiences that you get, and all the problems that you find. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, late at night when something goes wrong, the best way is to learn.
0: Yeah, we've we've actually had the experience this summer. We hired a bunch of um, co-op students from the local computer science department, at, oh, wow. and for some of them, um, uh, they've only it was their first job, so they've only ever worked remotely, um, uh, which is because we're we're a remote team. Yeah. And it was really interesting seeing people learn, you know, not just how to, you know, do, do their tasks, but actually learn how to learn to do their tasks all over Zoom and, uh, you, know, you know, using collaboration software and stuff like that. So it was a really interesting experience. Um, on that note, I wanted to ask you, so one thing that's come up, uh, Starting about six or seven months ago on the podcast is um, uh, how has uh, the pandemic affected you uh, in your life and professionally, and what what what's the your, the experience been in the place where you live? So I was wondering if we could t- just start by talking a little bit about what things have been like in Sydney in the last few months. Did were, were there mandatory mask requirements? Did everything get shut down? Just generally, yeah, it was. Uh,
1: I guess we. I'll say in Australia, up well, minus Melbourne potentially, we we sort of escaped a lot of the. A lot of it, which was good. Um, there was definitely lockdown for a while uh, in different different cities, uh, where you had to. Well, it wasn't as strict, but as other countries, but you sort of had to stay within your within your area, within your, I guess, your suburb. We call it. Um, most people were, let's say, eighty percent of the population, at least I had seen, were, were wearing masks, which was good. But it took us a little while to catch on. Probably took about two months. Probably around that sort of June, late June um, sorry, late May, early June timeframe, uh, that really started to set in, uh, supermarkets, all the, everything was selling off the shelves, which wasn't great. Um, but we've actually, um, when you, I guess if you compare the the amount of casualties in Australia versus elsewhere, we've been very fortunate probably because we're in the, an Island and in, in the middle of nowhere and they, and they restricted, um, overseas travel quite considerably. You can't even actually really travel between our, um, our States at the moment very, or very easily, I should say. Um, so we've been okay. Um, most organizations have started to work remotely, um, from about the May, April, May timeframe. Um, and like we, we've been working remotely since, yeah, since about late March, I guess. Uh, if anyone had asked me, I would have said that by, um, by July, we would all be back in the office, but uh, that's, um, I clearly would have lost that bet because <laughs> I don't think there's any intention of going back until sometime, uh, sometime early next year. And even that would be very, um, very casually based we, we did a bit of a poll in our team so say we've got about a hundred or just bit over a hundred software developers across our company and uh, we did a poll about four weeks ago to see how many people wanted to come back to the office uh, i would have expected maybe 50 percent just over 50 percent would have wanted to come back So they've had enough but it was about four people in the entire group was like oh, yeah i'll come back and mostly that was just to escape a small apartment um, or something similar just to get back into the office but yeah it's um as I said, we've been very fortunate, um, but yeah, I can sort of see us working remotely for, for quite, for quite some time, but it's, um, it's hard, uh, like selfishly for a second. It's hard um, when you lead people, lead teams. Um, it's a lot easier to do that in person. Uh, you can just walk around to people's desks, ask how they're going, catch up, go for coffee. If there's a problem, um, it's, it's not as mentally exhausting, but when you're um, on zoom conferences or um, we'll we use Microsoft teams for video conferencing, when you're doing that all day, because as a manager, you basically in meetings all the time, um, you are just in more of them, or it feels like you're in more of them because you're constantly on video calls and by the, just a standard nine to five day, which doesn't really exist. But when it does exist, you just, you're absolutely shattered. So, <clears throat> for me it's easier to manage in person which is a silly excuse but i know for the team they're they're loving um the remote work and the flexibility around that um and the commutes in sydney are pretty crazy like there's people that travel an hour and a half two hours each way to get into the office um so for them to save that time is you can sort of see why people are just enjoying that that extra time they get back in their life which adds up throughout the week so yeah it's yeah, thanks
0: very much for sharing all that. That's really fascinating. I mean, particularly to hear about it from the sort of like, you know, leadership side of things. Um, uh, personally, I I grew up um, uh, having to bus to school and it was like a 45 minute bus ride either way for what was actually only oh, wow. 10 minutes away. And I remember just like at a young age developing this acute awareness that I was just like wasting my time. And there were no phones, like there were no smartphones or anything back then. Like, you know, you just were just. Not
1: even uh, the Nokia's with the snake game on them. No, no,
0: there was nothing. And (laughs) so I was, I was just, just sitting there with my brain racing and, you know, and and just feeling. And so anyway, my, my point is that my whole, professional life, I've always related to commuting as just this like calamity. Um, (laughs) And and so uh, that's one of the reasons I work on a remote team now, but um, it is, it is, it's, it's sort of, to me, it's not surprising at all that most people, you know, once they realize they can save all that time and even do or use it to do more work um, that they would find it attractive, at least in the short term. Um, And on that note, um, uh, this is, this is part of the story of your book is that you actually have, uh, uh, new addition to your family. Um, uh, has, has working from home, been, a, <laughs> this is something that people have been writing and talking about a lot, uh, has, has, has working from home made that easier or has, so, has, is, is it harder to get things done?
1: Yeah. It's well, it's our first, it's our first kid or first baby. So, I'm going to assume it's a bit easier. I, I know my boss, when I was told him, it's like, Oh, this is the best time to have a baby. He goes, you can be at home, you can help out when you need to. Um, so it's actually been pretty amazing just to be able to sort of go from the front, I normally just work in, a, in the front room and just jump into the, into the living room and, and, uh, say hello to, to my wife and, and newborn and spend a bit of time with them throughout the day, which is actually pretty amazing, which I know a lot of people just generally can't do. Um, so that's, that's, yeah, that's a, that's a huge, a huge win. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know the opposite. I, I've seen friends that have come into the office um, every day after having a baby and they look absolutely shattered. So I'm hoping I don't look that bad. <laughs> so I'm guessing it's a little bit easier. Uh, it's, it's pretty fortunate, I think, if, um, on that perspective. Is that what other people are saying that you've been speaking to? Uh,
0: it's, it's different. It's different for everybody. Okay. Um, I mean, it depends on their circumstances. I think I think most, most people I've interviewed have reported enjoying being able to spend more time with their families um and being able to take care of their kids but i know there are some people i think people with maybe more than one um little kid who are having a really tough time and particularly if they're uh young and school age that's really it's just really heartbreaking because a five year i mean from what i hear like a five-year-old can't learn Remind me that's anything online. Um, and, and, yeah. and, and, also like a lot of people that I've talked to, or some people I've talked to well of like, kind of woken up to something that maybe was obvious to, to other people, but that, that like kindergarten and grade one and grade two aren't really about learning you know, yeah. learning things, um, not, yeah. although they, although you do, and it's an important part of the day, but it's kind of like having the kid be active and engaging with other people and doing things. Yeah. that social um, interaction. Mm. Yeah. And, and, you know, looking at screens just doesn't cut it. And I no, think a lot of people all. have reported it, it's heartbreaking. Like they they just don't know what to do. Um, so yeah, that's, it's, you know, and yeah, different places. Situation. Yeah, and different places are managing it differently. So it's very, things can change day to day, can be yeah. very confusing. And like one of the things, just to, not to go on about it, but um, particularly with young kids who are, it's their first encounter with reality, right? Um, yeah. And that encounter is like people wearing masks and getting out of the way to avoid you. Yeah. You know, like that's, yeah, that's, know that's a expect, strange way to yeah. be introduced to human society, you know? Um, yeah, it really is. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's going to be, I mean, pandemics have come and gone in the world before and, you know, humanity has endured, but, you know, it's, it's yeah, got to be. It's, it's, it's strange gotta, to be in it, isn't it? Yeah, it's got to stick with it's you. Um, well. uh, speaking of changes, so there's a, there's a segue for you. Um, so you, you moved from uh, Perth to Sydney and you ended up in leadership roles. And I think you write in your book or at least on your, or on your blog about how there was a kind of a two-stage <laughs> transition for you, uh, from being an engineer to being a team leader. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, about how that happened for you.
1: Yeah. Um, it, I guess it was semi-natural, but the way I sort of broke up, broke it in, it was in the book actually, um, around how I, how and why I jumped into, into leadership, but the, it's sort of like an, it's an entire career change. Um, And I think there's been some amazing um, articles um, and recognition about that from other leaders in, in the tech space, And I'm guessing even outside of tech um, saying that it's, you can't just jump into a leadership and and expect to be good at it. Uh, You're actually terrible at it when you start. Uh, And a lot of people are thrown into the deep end. But for me, the first step, the first stage uh, was sort of when I had moved into more of a, like a lead engineer or team lead role, I should call it. Um, It's a little bit different in every company. And it was when you are still hands-on coding, but you're leading a team. Uh, And normally a small team, maybe four or five people. uh, And you because you're still hands-on, you still have that option um, in moving back into a a fully individual contributor role. Um, So coding again, if if you feel like the leadership um, role isn't, actually, isn't something you actually want to uh, continue on in your, in your your career. Uh, And that's, it gives you a bit of a, bit of peace of mind, a bit of a a a backup plan. Uh, And so that was sort of that phase, that first phase where when I did that and I started to enjoy it, I started to realize that you can, um, be involved in more. You can actually have a po- hopefully a positive effect on uh, or impact on people within your team. Obviously looking back, uh, I feel like I was a pretty, wasn't the greatest manager back then. I wasn't terrible. Wasn't the greatest. You learn a lot um, by your experiences. So that was the first phase I was uh, I did that. And then about um the second phase was over a few different companies. I think it was about two or three different companies over a few years um, when I was over in Sydney actually, uh, and it's when you when I started to step into a role a leadership role where I was leading multiple teams, and it was when you basically turn into um, a manager uh, that isn't doing any hands-on coding, um, in their role. Um, you're sort of stepping away from that. Um, and for, for quite some time, I, I was definitely coding at home and I still am actually coding at home just to stay up to date, but you, you, you are more involved in more of the, the architectural side of things and, um, and trying to find ways to make teams more effective, um, and engaged. But for that me, that's a, it's a big jump. And I, and I feel like a lot of people in that who go through that sort of would feel a similar thing where you sort of have to make that decision as if you commit down that pathway or not commit, because if, you can't do both. You, you'll burn yourself out. Um, you'll do a poor job of both. If you try to um, keep, keep control of um, both the code and the, and the people side. Uh, but at the same time, when you make that jump, you can't exactly go, "Oh, it's not working and then jump back into a coding role because like trying to go through a coding interview at an organization, they're not easy. Like most, most tech companies put, you, put people through uh, pretty challenging technical interviews and, and you, it, it'd be very hard to jump back into that. So it was a bit of a leap of faith. Unfortunately um, for me, cause I've done it, I did it over quite a few years. It was a, it was a, it, it was a transition, a gradual transition and I made, uh, I was pretty confident that it would be something that I would um, enjoy and, and hopefully be decent at. Um, so it worked out for me. Uh, and I feel like, yeah, definitely working on, um, on side projects off to the side uh, at home at night. Um, it's definitely helped me make sure that I, uh, uh, I get my outlet of coding because for me, coding is extremely relaxing. Uh, and I can just put the headphones on and, and and hack away at a few things at night when I've got the time, a bit less time now. Uh, and it, it relaxes me, actually. Uh.
0: And what have you found to be the biggest challenge? I mean, you, you mentioned that, you know, like being in person is actually a really important thing for you and in, in your leadership style. But what has been the biggest challenge that you've faced in, you know, going going remote with your team, if you can think of a specific... Specific thing? Is it like oh, getting right. everybody um, together, having successful one on ones?
1: Yeah, it'd be, it'd be a few things. One on ones are harder in my mind because one on ones for me are always a very, um, quite a casual thing, um, ca- casual encounter. Um, and it's a time where, um, you and the individual get to, to we literally every, just for every single one on one, we would be outside of the coffee shop. Um, I do like a bit of coffee or a tea. Uh, just catching up on any topic that they find relevant or myself find relevant, and it's it's far more of a casual um, interaction when you're actually outside those those, those meeting rooms um, or the office walls. Even though office is actually okay, it's not a like Google, but it's an okay office. <laughs> it's uh, it's easier outside the office. Um, so for me, definitely one-on-ones was harder. Um, we actually try now to catch up with someone because i don't live too far from the city and a few of us are in my team are maybe within about 15 20 minute drive so we do try once a week to catch up with someone in person um, and, and at least do one of our catch-ups uh in um in person which is really nice it's amazing There's like a lot of people don't see other people uh, so it's good to see someone that's not on a flat screen um so that that has helped um we've actually been relatively okay in regards to like team meetings um, and, and running like whether there are uh, like a, a technical solutioning meeting or like a retrospective like those we, we were doing then with online tooling before the pandemic. So um, there's a lot of great tools out there that um, I know a lot of companies use, but yeah, definitely making use of the Alassian suite and, uh, well, even Charlie's part of them now. A few teams are jumping onto the Miro bandwagon, which I've just started to use a little bit of now. I was a bit behind the curve on that. So I think the tooling's all right. Um, but the, probably the biggest challenge um, that I would see is when you're trying to create, I spoke about in my book, but I'll relate it. It's harder in the, it's harder working remotely. Well, it's harder working remotely for a company that wasn't entirely remote to begin with. Uh, like some organizations are, and it's creating, it's like creating like alignment on key decisions. And what I mean by that is if you're wanting to go off and um, actually, here's an example. We're, we're talking right now around and um, F. grown from by acquisition. So We've acquired different companies throughout years. And because of that, you end up with, Four, five, six different platforms that are actually doing very similar things. It's very hard to deprecate platforms in technology. Uh, sometimes it's cheaper to let them go. It doesn't help the mental state. But one of the challenges we're trying to find now is how do we align our payment implementations uh, across all of our systems? And how do we architect a solution to do that? And then how do we actually get four different teams on board with that solution um, while getting another team to build so one of those core set of services for that capability? Uh, normally to do that you could have a quick whiteboarding session with a few of the team members in person um, brainstorm a bit come back in a week or two once everyone's had an idea to bring in the uh, understanding context and come with some ideas but doing it remotely you've got to have like quite a few like well-structured well-planned out meetings Um, so when people come into a zoom meeting they're actually they've understood the context up front they can come with ideas Um, we can have some debates about it and we can go off for a week or two and um, and think about it and come back and actually make some decisions. But so I find like some of those decision makings for key, dis- key technical decision makings take a bit longer than they normally would. Um, I definitely feel like we could get better at it. Cause I look at other organizations uh, that do this, that have been doing this for a while and they're a lot more efficient than we are at that. So it's an area of improvement, but it's just harder. It's, it's, uh, it's not, it's not simple for me, but uh, yeah, you might be able to share me a few, a few tips from, uh, cause I used to lean parts entirely on um, a remote organization.
0: Yeah. right yeah um actually that that is, i mean i there is I could talk about that for <laughs> forever um, uh but uh what i did actually one thing i did want to talk to you about and and i can share some experiences of my own about this but you write you write um on your at least on your manager dot com uh page uh, that you direct people to from various places that um trust is really important to you as a leader and uh what that involves is obviously expecting people to trust you uh but but you you like i the way i Saw or the way I read it when i when I read your page was that trust trusting someone out of the gate is actually a really great shortcut if they 're a trustworthy person um, and i don 't think you said this, but you know and if they 're not trustworthy then you 're fucked anyway so you might as well yeah. <laughs> you might as well trust yeah, sure. them um, and uh, I was wondering if um, working remotely if you've if you 've like particularly for someone like you, for whom trust is so important, explicitly important, uh, has working remotely affected that? Have you, have you found yourself doubting people in ways that you wouldn't have if you were working together in the same physical space? Yeah. It's
1: when you, uh, yeah, I actually like that you call that out because, um, there's a few, I, everyone has a different mindset, right? Some people come into a, a new relationship trusting by default, which is as, as, as I said in, um, in my manager read me something that I do. And some people come in like a bit cautious and they actually want to want someone to earn their trust. And there's no right or wrong way. Like everyone takes their own approach, but like you, you determine trust in my, even if you're going, if you're interviewing someone, doesn't matter which side you, you I, I determine trust by, you can read a lot from people's mind or people's faces, I should say, um, and their expressions. Um, and that is a lot easier to do in person. Uh, one of the things that we do in our organization is, um, whether it's for interview or even one-on-ones unless the internet goes terribly slow for a moment. Like we, are, uh, we all do our videos um, with videos on and video conferences on like it's, and we even had a meeting actually a rather big meeting between a bunch of different leaders across our group. It was probably an expensive meeting, but it needed to happen, but um, it was around some pretty important topics. Um, and the one rule for that meeting is about four, three or four weeks ago. It was like, just everyone, to leave your videos on if you've got to go away and do something else turn it off but when you actually have something to say turn your video on because the way you express something people can read a lot into that and it's um it allows people to help get them on the same page um, so that's something that we're doing but you're right like it's very easy remotely i found even for myself um when you're having conversations over um over chat or even emails it's very easy to read into someone's tone accidentally or, or incorrectly uh, happens all the time. Uh, and I've got a few people on my team actually that are really good at just uh, giving me or other people um, very quick little two, three minute VCs just to quickly chat about it um, rather than responding back on an email because yeah, it's um, text is hard to understand tone, which I think a lot of people would would agree with, but it's actually easier to keep communicating that way, right? It's actually takes someone a bit of effort to, jump in and actually click a video call to call someone to chat to them for a few minutes. Um, because it's, well, I'll say it's a little bit unnatural. Um, it's, it's very natural to go to someone's desk and to say, well, did you actually mean this? Did I interpret it right? Uh, but definitely find you've got to keep yourself, um, continually checking yourself if you actually are, um, if you're reading it right, is, is this the right, um, is this the right medium to have that specific conversation? Um, because yeah, I would say that, the video conference is um is the next best thing to meeting someone in person um emails aren't the greatest i was actually reading a book at the moment um or just finished reading a book uh that actually talked a bit about it um radical candor which has been recommended to me by a fair few people and and she she um kim scott i think was the author i'm very bad with author names by the way but yeah she was definitely talking about that as well around just email is literally the worst can be one of the worst mediums to have any conversation other than like scheduling meetings um, or sharing some context just due to the fact that people interpret interpret them in very different ways. So, but yeah, easier said than done though, isn't it?
0: It is, it is. And it's really fascinating because, you know, there's, there's another side to it, which is that a lot of people kind of don't present very kind of um, well uh, in, in, in stressful context. Yes, uh, and so, and so for example, you know, the kind of person like, and I totally identify with this, who like doesn't know how to dress well, you know, <laughs> um, uh, you know, the office was always a bit of a challenge that way. Right. I had to do like, you know, some ex- yep. extra, extra thinking. And I always knew I'd kind of like the, uh, the best I'd ever be as average as it were, you know? And, and, um, uh, so there can be a lot of people for whom, um, not being in that context is actually helps them be a lot more productive. Um, yep. Uh, and and work more effectively and be and actually be better understood by their colleagues, uh, but for other people, yeah, it's it's the exact opposite. It's like I you know I can't get a sense from you mm. of what you, what you're into. And um, uh, I mean at Leanpub we we give people a lot of rope. Um, you know, it's kind of like, here's your, here's your list of tasks. Uh, yeah. And, and we, we, it's just to be you know, specific about it. Like, you know, more or less in our, in our culture, when someone, someone, we actually do do video calls, like kind of tapping on the shoulder. Right. Um, yeah. um, uh, and that's, that's the way we want people to think of it. So like, you know, my colleague, Peter will just like start a zoom call with me in Slack. And like, when I see yeah. it, I'll, I'll either just click it and join and he might not even be in the room and he'll come back and be like, Oh yeah. Hey, I just wanted to talk to you about this. Um, uh, and, and basically we, we interact kind of when you need to, um, yeah. the one thing that, that kind of, and Peter does most of the managing of the, of the, of our programmers and stuff like that. But, you know, the one thing that, that kind of concerned me was that, you know, if you're, if you're o- older and professional and you've been around the block a few times, you can kind of get that. Whereas, you know, if you're young and it's your first job, you might think, oh my God, the boss just put a link. I better, I better answer it as quickly as possible. And so getting people to trust us that that we're not going to, you know, um, you know, be cracking, you know, the whip at them or something like that. That's not what we're doing when we're trying to catch up. Uh, and interested, right? Yeah. How,
1: they're, how they're going.
0: Yeah, exactly, exactly. And yeah, um, and yeah but it's, it's, it's been an interesting challenge. And yeah, as you say, like, you know, being in person can really help get a sense of how a person's feeling and stuff like that in ways that you can't, you can't necessarily do, um, on yeah, video calls. Uh, to, yeah. You know? Uh, speaking of books, um, uh, so moving on to the next part of the interview, you've, you've written a great book called leading software teams with context, not control. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, um, what your motivation was to, to write the book.
1: Yeah, of course. Uh, I had, many years ago I had a friend actually who very a good friend who's very technically minded wanted to wanted to write a book with me and I was telling him how hard it would be and I stuck with it for about two months and in the end I was like actually it's not the right time in my career to do this and he ended up going off and finishing it and and writing that book which is impressive so it's always been on the back of my mind to to write a book in sometime later in my career Uh, but I just didn't know when Um, I when I was I guess when I'd moved into more of into leadership, I sort of found myself doing, you do lots of repetitive tasks. You try to do them a little bit different each time to keep them interesting and to learn. But um, you, because like whether they're one-on-ones, team meetings, road mapping, et cetera, uh, even going through that process, it takes quite a lot of um, mental energy. Well, it would, does for me Uh, and I was like when I was a developer I used to have all these little libraries or frameworks or my own bits of code that I could definitely like take from project to project um, to really like fast track an initiative I was working on but for management or leadership I didn't necessarily have that so so it was taking me a lot of time so I started off with the idea of so I want to write a bit of a like a 10-part 12-part blog series um, on things that I do so I can use it as a like a cheat sheet for how I lead teams, um, wouldn't do everything by the book every time, but, uh, it would be a, it would be a way for me to sort of fast track getting back up to speed on something that I needed to do maybe once a year or even once every few weeks. But as I started to write this out, flesh this out a bit, um, it, um, it evolved and I was like, Oh, well, I might sort of, I might sort of write a book, right? <laughs> um, how hard can it be? I knew it would be hard. So anyway, I, uh, and I, as, as you said, as you touched on before, I've, um, I've written a blog about how I wrote my book, but I, um, I started to have more than 10 topics uh, um, that I wanted to write about. Um, I ended up having about 40 different topics, but I culled that down to about 20, 22 topics uh, or 23 topics or chapters in the end. Um, but yeah, so I basically wrote the book so that I could put down on paper or digital digital paper, <laughs> um, all the things that I do when um, leading a team or leading individuals, um, specifically in the software engineering space uh and um uh yeah and it was essentially a reference point so i could go back and book uh, have different like exercises in there that i would follow when i when i like as i said run a team meeting or try to define goals or collaborate on goals um, or write position descriptions or run interviews. Uh, I've got different exercises and um, um, processes that I follow that I can just reference back and, and take bits and pieces from just to generally to selfishly make my, make my life a bit easier, but at the same time, share it around the community. Um, see who else is leading teams and who can maybe take a little 2% here and there from the book and, and, and use that within, use that within their role yeah, um, really, when they're leading teams.
0: It's a really fascinating description which you, which you um, uh, touched on a little bit earlier of, uh, your motivation is in part with respect to reusability is kind of, it's kind of moving, right? Because you, you had the experience of working on products and that get, you know, get, get canceled. Um, uh, you might've been working on them for a very long time and all that work just kind of feels like it went out the window. Or as you were talking about before, you know, number of companies can get acquired by a bigger fish and then become redundant and one or two might, might fall away. But what, what, but you realize that there is something that, can persist which is what you've learned and what you've taught and the culture that you've created on the teams uh and i found i found that actually kind of moving because it's it is if you can get caught up and in the sort of moment to moment and sort of maybe not even lose sight, never have any sight of the bigger picture of what's really going on and that, you know, you're going to have a career that's going to go other places and you should be keeping in mind right now what you're develop, what you're developing in yourself uh, for, you know, that will help you develop in the future. And you talk about, uh, and it's in there in the, in the title of the book about, um, focusing on context rather than control, uh, as a way of developing this kind of team culture and attitude within, within people. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and why it's the opposite of a command and control kind of approach.
1: Yeah. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, so I'll, I'll start with, uh, so I didn't, I didn't create that term. Um, it's definitely something that I've heard over the last few years, um, four or five years in the industry. Um, I know that Netflix is, is one of the companies that talks about it. I think it's in their employee, employee handbook. Um, but it resonated with me when I heard it because I was like, well, this is actually how, I, how I'm trying my best to run teams. Um, and and what, it, what it means essentially is that um, you spend a lot of your time, you, tr- you should spend a lot of your time trying to provide context to the, for a problem, um, all the boundaries that you are aware of with the problem. Um, and then let the teams go off and try and solution a problem to that. Uh, and, and the reason for that is, um, it, it pushes the decision-making, um, down to the team level. And the more decisions that a team can make, the more effective they're going to be. Uh, it, it, it is a key ingredient in my opinion in, um, in building high performing teams. Uh, but what made it even more important for me as I sort of progressed throughout my, uh, throughout my career and leading, um, different size teams is that uh, as you're sort of leading one team, you've sort of got the mental headspace to, you can lead in this way, but you've got the mental headspace to understand all the architecture, all every bit of the code of the platform, all the team members really easily. Um, but as you start to lead more teams, like two teams, 10 teams, team of teams, you need a different strategy. Uh, you, you physically can't do that. You'll do a really bad job and you'll burn out. Um, you just can't do it. So by following this context, um, not control or context over control as other Um, as it might be termed as well, um, out there on the internet. It allows you as a leader to invest your time, as I said, in the context and the boundaries. You're sort of contributing that that 10% and the teams are working on that 90%. They're doing 90%, which, as I said, encourages ownership. But because you're only doing the 10% and it's guiding and pulse checking throughout the course of a project or an initiative, um, you can then spread yourself across many other projects, many other teams uh, because you're not as heavily involved and it's a really good way of stepping back um, but ensuring that there is a, a level of um, um, context and a level of boundaries that are understood by the teams that don't go off in entirely the wrong direction. So it's really helped me um, maintain my level of sanity but it's also I believe helped the people I've worked with because they can all step up and take a much more bigger level of ownership than they would have if I was trying to be involved in every single aspect of, um, of, of their role and, and what they do, which in all honesty, they would do it far better than I could have. Um, if you just give them the opportunity to, to do so. And I really think that is not just a software engineering, um, industry thing. I think it's definitely something that could be, that can resonate across any single, um, or just about any single industry um, out there that's, um, revolving around leadership.
0: Yeah, I think uh, well, thanks for that great explanation, and for and for talking about the, you know the origins origins of the context versus control kind of idea. Um, uh, I, I find it really interesting because it, you know the the sort of the, the, the crudest way of putting the the bad case for uh, you know the command and control style is that if all someone has been trained to do is re- react and obey, then they'll they it's not just that they won't be able to they'll never be able in in your context they'll never be able to make decisions themselves and and this is actually one of the reasons that command and control is just so fundamentally inefficient yeah uh people people f- who adopt the kind of command and control mentality often think that they're they're being more efficient by being kind of harder on people and getting them to obey the boss you know but actually they're I'm, in my opinion um that that kind of thing actually involves an incredible amount of wasted time and inefficiency and failure
1: it does and then even when those those leaders who follow that um command strategy yeah, when they move on like all of a sudden the team just is in dis- dismay, right? Like they just can't yeah. function. Um, whereas if, if you can leave and they already know what they're doing and they can keep themselves going, like that is that is your job done pretty well.
0: Yeah, one of the, one of the genres of article that I love to hate read uh, nowadays is you know the kind of person who's like, but, but, but if people aren't in the office and I can't see them, how do I know they're going to work? And it's like, wow, you must suck to work for if it won't, won't work unless you're beating them. Into crazy, it, you isn't know? it? Like, and 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 the, 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 I guess the, the, not to go on about it, but the funny thing about to me about it is that people who do that adopt the affect like it, internally, like they, they they really feel like they're being a hard charging manager, and it's like yeah. you're a you're a mess. <laughs> if you why are you hiring people who won't work unless. Yeah, I know. that's they really feel like cycle, they're going to isn't punished, you know? Like, what are you yeah. – anyway, not to go on about that. Yeah, that's
1: no, I had a, um, I had I had really a friend like that it. I caught up with coffee just a month or so back. Um, and, uh, yeah, he's, then that, that person's not in technology. Um, I was like, oh, how do you yeah, – it's actually what you said. How, do you, how are you managing people remotely? Like, how, how do you know that they're doing their job? And I was like, well, there's specific things that they're trying to achieve every sprint if they're working in, say, two-week sprints, as an example as long as they're achieving that or, 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 and, and progressing in the, in those goals, like that's all you need. It doesn't matter if they can do that in two hours or 40, 50 hours. Like if they're getting that done, that's um, that is ultimately a great outcome, right? Now, if they're doing it in two hours, maybe we should find some more challenging work for them to work on. But in saying that, like as it goes back to trust that we spoke about before, right? You've got to trust people and if there's issues, you pick it up quickly and, um, and hopefully course correct. But uh, yeah, it's far more efficient doing that than it is, uh, as you say, whiffing the stick. Yeah. One thing,
0: one thing, uh, when it comes to sort of, uh, the practicality of, of creating a context or setting a context, you talk at the beginning of the book about baselining a software team. And I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about what, what baselining is and at what stage that, that happens in the process of leading a project or.
1: Yeah. So I put baselining, yeah. Baselining a software engineering team as the yeah, it's the first chapter um, in the book because it's mistakes that I have, I've made this mistake in the past and you're, you, well, you should always learn from your mistakes. And um, it's very easy for a, a new person, a new leader to come into a, to an organization and just look at what's going on really quickly and then start to make rather significant uh, strategic decisions. Um, whether that's projects that they should invest time in uh, or, uh, or, or types of roles that they should fill. Uh, and that is extremely dangerous. And I say that, I say that from experience because if you do that, you're, you're making decisions that will ultimately impact the organization in three, six, 24 months time. But if you base that on the wrong foundations, uh, as I said, it's very expensive to undo. So for me, it is a necessity it's a non-negotiable actually to invest significant portion of your time um whether you're stepping up into a new role in the same organization or or moving into an existing role to invest time to understand the current state of that team so under and from a software perspective or software team perspective understand uh how the teams function how they're delivering code into production uh their, their their testing practices uh the how they um how they are different design patterns that they use, uh, what their after hour support looks like. Um, do they even have after hour support, et cetera. So understanding all the things and, and I gave in the book uh, essentially a, um, a list of different measures that you could take into account, both technical and um, and cultural uh, that you could use as the baseline. And you can obviously uh, you can obviously include your own. And I think every team can have as can use a subset of those. And obviously add specifics that make sense for their organization. But once you've got that, it leads on to all the different things that allow you to move from where you currently are into your target state. So it, 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 it this baseline allows you to start to talk about goal setting, uh, road mapping, um, creating like an aspirational target state for that team to reach in, in, in many years time. It, it, it is really the foundation for that. And as I said, if you don't do that at the start, yeah, you can find yourself as a leader making decisions that you will probably realize in six or 12 months time that it was, they weren't necessarily the right, uh, the right decisions to make.
0: Right, right. It's really important to know where you are in order to know yeah. where you want to go and how you want to get there. Um, so we've, we've talked at a very high level about uh, about these things. Uh, and I just want to make, make it clear that in the book, although there is a lot of high level stuff going on, there's a lot of very practical, discreet um, uh, advice uh, about how to do various things. Um, uh, you know, there's a chapter on effective software team metrics. Software software team structures, um, onboarding effectively, and you know even specific things about adopting a new technology and things like that. So for anyone interested, there's there's the theory and there's also the practice in this book, uh, and it's um and it's really good and I highly recommend it. Um, just moving on to the last part of the interview where we talk about your experience uh, as a self-published book author. Um, you've got a blog post which we'll link to in the transcription where you write at length about your experience, but um, without going into the entire story, which would take quite some time. <laughs> um, um, uh, can you talk a little bit about what, you, what your journey was, uh, you know, through the process of writing the book and, and what you learned a little bit. Yeah. can.
1: Okay. I'll definitely have to, uh, on that blog post, i still got one little thing to add, which is a, like a, um, a graph on hours invested over the course of nine months or 10 months. Um, so I had that, I had that quickly. It was on my to-do list, but no, I, I uh, I self published, well, for a few reasons. But the main reason was I, um, I've always dabbled in side projects and startups, very unsuccessful startups, I'll say, but, but, uh, but still I tried. Uh, self-publishing for me was like a mini startup, right? Like you had to, you have to do everything. You've got to author the book. You've got to create the cover. You've got to edit it. Um, I did get some help editing. And I'm still getting a bit of help with a few things at the moment, um, just to make some tweaks because it's never ending. Then uh, you've got to publish it. And uh, it's the same as, Starting a startup, right? Like you've got to do it all. So it was quite exciting for me to try and think, like, could I, can I do this? It was, it was a challenge. Like, do I have the skills to go off and do it in a good enough way? Like, it's not going to be a a New York times bestseller, but it's uh, it's hopefully a book that people get some value out of. So that was the reason reason I did it. Uh, but yeah, as, as you touched on the blog post, uh, I won't go into it cause it took me too long to write that, but <laughs> it was a, um, I think it comprised of about, I think I broke it down to about 20 different or 19 different stages. I went through when writing the book, um, I'm a first-time author, so I'm sh- I know there are many different ways I could have done that a lot more effectively if I was to do it a second time round. Uh, I probably could have condensed it down to about nine steps, but it was um, look, I knew I knew going into the project was hard. I knew it'd be really hard. It was probably considerably harder than I actually had thought, um, but. Uh, yeah, the, the probably the biggest wall I hit was when I thought I was about 25% of the way through, sorry, 65% of the way through the book. And I was, when I actually went back through it all and reassessed the situation and I was about 25% of the way through. So I was like, this really is a marathon, but uh, yeah, I just look, uh, I did what every challenged software project does. I just kept investing more and more and more time because I had a deadline. I obviously I wanted to write, finish the book before my uh, baby was born. So I just invested more time until I got it completed, which was around three or so hours every night and then um, most weekends to, uh, to complete the book. But in saying that, I'm glad I did it. I'm glad there was a deadline. I could definitely get a lot better at um, smaller milestones, which I would do in any project I'd work on at work. I just didn't do it for my own project, which is another lesson another lesson learned. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, and then I, um, I unfortunately discovered – I'd seen LeanPub before, but I discovered it probably around the 70% of the weight mate say 70% of the way through the book. And I was catching up with a friend who I had a suspicion was writing a book. Um, and he's, uh, he wrote a book on, I think effective Kafka was the title. And he's telling me all about Leanpub. pub. He's like, you've got to use Leanpub. pub. You've got, you've got to jump onto it. So I was like, okay, okay. So I, um, so I logged in about a day later and then had a look around and uh, I was like, wow, this is a pretty extensive platform. So then I started to, um, well, that's sort of partially where I realized that I had to get away from like google docs and move into my well, moving to markdown as well and and start to and start to link it all up and uh and um but yeah it was um it was a book that sort of just had an evolution of its own uh but i learned a lot of different tools um and a lot of different ways to um to author it and to publish it and and uh and yeah and then um it ended up finding itself onto um, onto Lean Pub and and to a few other platforms later on. Um and it, for, for like for print copy. Um, yeah, but yeah it was it was a good experience. It was tough. I, I think uh, I need a reset, a bit of rest before I do another book. I don't know how you've written, is it five or six books now?
0: Man? What me myself? Yeah, how many books have you, you've written a few? Uh I wrote a novel, um and uh I wrote a PhD dissertation, but other than that, if you've seen those books, those are probably my like chapters from my, from my Uh, doctor. Um, but, uh, yeah. Um, uh, my approach to writing has historically been very similar to the one I I sort of gleaned yours is uh, from your blog post. Um, I really, really like to structure things a lot, uh, before, before I get going. Um, uh, and um, I don't know why. But I, and like I used to edit a couple of student paper editor in chief of a couple of university student papers and yeah. stuff like that. And like always, what I did to people, well, I mean, gently as gently as I could, it was like, before you write an article that I've commissioned, um, you need to structure it. You need to see, and and and, the, and and one of the reasons you do that is so in the introduction you can set out what you're going to do. And so even if it's like a news piece, the first paragraph should kind of tell the whole story of what you're going to be doing. Um, yeah. And you can't do that unless you've structured it. And now one way to do that is, is of course, always write the introductory paragraph or chapter last um, once you know how everything's settled out. But, um, uh, but yeah, I've, I've just always been drawn to a similar approach to the one you took for the book, which is to like, you know, plan it all out in advance and then, fill in the details and and like actually like planning it out like at at a high level and then like like you know the chapter level and then the like you you actually sort of set upon a structure for each a four-part or five-part structure for each chapter um and yeah that's 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 exactly how i aspire aspire to do things when i'm writing
1: good to know Um, it definitely helped it's not it's, um... it's not
0: for everybody i mean a lot of people they just like you know they just dive in And start 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 writing, and then see where it goes. And that's that's another that's a really great approach to writing. And what I mean, one of the things you learn after you if you write a lot is, you know, everybody's got their own. Personality and preferences and, and time available and motivation and things like that. And, uh, you know, it's important to, it's important to be forgiving of your, I mean, it's important to punish yourself a bit, but it's also important to be, to be forgiving too uh, and, and to accept that, you know, there are some things that you like and some things that you don't. Um, try to minimize the latter and, you know, of course. Maximize the former, of course. Um, uh, and so you uh, uh, you start you started, and so just when you, this is the last part of the interview, where we really getting into the weeds. But so you started out writing on Google Docs, and then you switched yeah. to Markdown, and you ended up using Pandoc um, to create your ebook files, if I understand correctly. Uh, and you used our Bring Your Own Book writing mode, where you you create your own ebook files and then you upload them yourself. Is that yeah? I tried.
1: Possible? I tried. Well, I didn't go into all the details in that in that blog post, but I, um, uh, I tried a few approaches. Yeah. Started with Google docs, just, which is easy to begin with until it started, um, being too slow. Then I jumped into the, um, into lean pub, but actually used the, uh, the editor inline editor. Um, I also linked it up into GitHub at the start, but then I found out I wanted a little bit more. Um, I wanted to be able to control some of the CSS more. So I, um, that was after I had a sort of, you're ready to publish. So then I ended up, um, cause I was already all in Markdown, um, and linked up through, through GitHub. I kept seeing GitLab cause I use it at work, but for GitLab, GitHub, I then ended up in the end pulling it back and then yeah, using Pandoc to convert it cause then I could apply, um, custom CSS, which again, I didn't put this a lesson learned. I got the formatting I wanted, but in hindsight, it's, it's harder to format an ebook than it is to format a website in my opinion now because there's so many different readers and uh, and formats now out there that I've realized. Um, so that was what I ended up doing um, in the end uh, because, yeah, just some specifics I wanted to be able to do around like formatting tables. Again, you shouldn't have large tables and eBooks, but I'd already committed down that way and I just didn't want to re I didn't want to rewrite that in the book that was working. Um, but yeah, so I did that. So I ended up, yes, yeah, so in the end, I ended up bringing my own book to um bring my own book to lean pub uh, and publishing that out in uh, the ebook, EPUB, Mobi, and um, PDF formats, and oh, all the samples as well. And then created a little build pipeline on my end, just because I'm a programmer at heart, to uh, to script that publishing out, um, and then sp- script out also a publish to a um to a print format as well.
0: And yeah, so yeah, you mentioned you have got it in print. I think on Amazon, and you've got a Kindle version so up there take. as well. And you've got um, yep. uh, you're on Apple Books and Google Play as well. Um, how have you found? Uh, how have you been promoting the book? I guess is what because you've got it on these different channels, which is a pretty typical yeah. approach that successful self-published yeah. authors take. Um, there's there's some people who are like keep it all in one place, but there's the the you know many baskets, eggs in many baskets kind of metaphor that people use. Um, how have you been promoting the book?
1: Yeah, so I definitely tried different baskets. I don't know if that's the right way. It's like putting a bet on in a sports game. I do too many bets and I don't end up winning enough. But uh, in, um, in this, I most of the sales uh, come from, um, from LeanPub. There's a few on Amazon as well, mainly for the print version, obviously. Uh, marketing, I've tried a few things. Um, well, a few things on different platforms, but mainly... Um, so I I trying to write some, um, we've been running a few blog posts that, that, that a chapters of the book, uh, to get them out, like smaller subsets of the chapters, uh, publishing them on different social channels. I've, I've done some paid advertising, uh, which definitely got some good, um, some good interest. Uh, doesn't always convert, but that's just, that's, 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 that's just what normally advertising does. You get a small version of small amount of conversion. Uh, there's a few other channels um, that I think I can, I can definitely do some more advertising um, that I've been looking into over the last um, probably two or so weeks. I, I feel like you could have like a, a healthy level of advertising going continuously and not just, I probably went a little bit too hard at the start, um, but I could sort of drip feed that over the course of um, a year or so um, just to build some momentum. Uh, I'd love to get out there and like I used to do a few talks at some different conferences and then talk about it, but it's a little bit harder to do that now. It's getting a bit better now because most things are turning actually online. So you can probably get more exposure to do that, but that's on my list for maybe 2021. If I'm being honest, um, seeing the year is getting close to the end already. So I have tried a few different techniques. Um, I can't really pinpoint on anything that has worked better than the others. Uh, I definitely feel like I, I sort of launched, launched it a little bit early and, and like created a, um, Created a website that linked off to um to things like Lean Pub and and and, and, and Amazon, um, and linked to it from my blogs and that's I think getting some organic traffic coming in and I feel like that's the best long term approach because it's it's it yeah it's like SEO is a bit of a uh, it's a bit of a drug sorry SEM is a bit of a drug right you can keep paying for it but you need organic growth um to to really sustain itself so it's an ongoing challenge I've never been a good marketer so I'm always open for advice.
0: Um, yeah. Well, that's, that's uh it's, it's one of the big challenges that uh, people yeah. can be excellent writers and create excellent books. And then, you know, getting the message out might, might just be something, a new skill you have to learn, just like, you know, everything yeah, else exactly. you learn in learn in life. And um, uh, you know, it's important again, like, you know, like I said about writing, like you know, I think the, the, the one piece of advice that I, that I've come across that I like the most about self-published book marketing is do what you enjoy again, as much as possible. Okay. Same thing with writing, like don't, don't, if you find yourself really hating a certain type of marketing effort, you know, don't do it. Like if, if, if talking at conferences is, is, the way you like to do, to do things, if creating like meaningful content in blog posts and stuff like that is how you like to do things, then, then do that. Um, uh, the bus. yeah. Uh, well, um, uh, so just wrapping up the last question, I always like to ask uh, lean pub authors if they're the guest, if the guest is on the podcast is a Lean Pub author is if there was one thing we could fix for you, that really bugged you or one feature we could build for you, what would you ask us to do?
1: So this might have been created in the last few months, month or so, but yeah, as I said, touch on before, if I could have one feature. Um, so in Link pub, you've got the different templates, um, different, I guess, I don't know if you call them templates or themes on my mind themes losing yeah. a bit at the moment. Yeah. Themes. Thank you yeah. So you got different themes, uh, being able to essentially, bring your own theme, bring your own CSS. Um, but then be able to tie that because that, I couldn't do that exactly how I wanted to do it when I first tried to publish it. And that would have been amazing if I could have. And then if I was to just throw in a sneaky seconds, um, because I know a lot of developers like technical people publish, publish on your, on, on your platform, which is amazing. Um, having like a basic, uh, sort of mini build pipeline where you could build out your, um, build out your um, your ebook so like into different formats Um, but then that could also fit into um, I guess it allow you to build your own maybe you don't actually need this now I'm talking about it it's funny how that happens but definitely be able to apply your own formatting and CSS but the reason I said build pipelines as well is that you can then tweak how you do your um your page numbers and, and your margins and things like that. So it's a bit more relevant to print, but maybe that's somewhere that lean, maybe we we'll go to. I'm not sure. Um, yeah, I,
0: I think, I mean, the, the short answer is that philosophically, that's not really our, our approach yeah. to things. Because I mean, lean is in the, in the, in the name of the I know, I know. company. And so, but, but that being like, so for you can, you can read in our help center, anyone listening, like, yeah. you know, we, we actually have, we, we do all of text, like, you know, way too long explanations of our policies on things sometimes. <laughs> but the big, the big picture for us is that we want to provide something that makes it uh, easy to write and publish and produce things. And when, but, but we understand, I mean, we're perfectionists. And, and my, my, my colleague Peter's joke is like semi-joke is that uh, formatting is procrastination until, until, with the important caveat, until your book is finished, when your book is finished, take all the time you want. Our recommendation is take all the time you want to get to the level of formatting that you want. That's one of the reasons we have InDesign export, like, you know, where you can... If you want to, you can give, yep. give your manuscript to, and it might already be published on LeanPub in a bestseller, but if you want to hand it over to a professional book designer, we've got InDesign export. and But also the reason we have our bring-your-own-book writing mode, which lets you do, do whatever you want and then just upload PDF, EPUB, and Mobi, or even one yep. of one, one or two of those, um, if you like, is is because over the years like we realized that like we would never be able, I mean, it's a simple thing to say, but like we'd never be able to satisfy everybody's formatting requirements. And we, we used to have different like, m- multiple like even more writing modes than we do now because like a google docs writing mode and stuff like that because we were trying to yep. accommodate people and we realized after a while no no it we we were about keeping things simple and making it easy and we love formatting it's really important but that's for finished books and so we we try and yep. give people the opportunity to put beautiful books up for sale on LeanPub that they've made using their own tooling uh but yeah the kind of thing that you're describing i i mean i can't you know i can't make any promises on behalf of the company at all, all time or whatever but <laughs> But, you know, we and but now that is not one last thing to say is that we do, however, listen very closely to authors needs and requirements. Um, yep. We just spent quite a bit of time, like we're in the middle of a big redesign, but we actually took some carved out some time to satisfy an author's requests for um, finer detail uh, control over tables and table formatting so if you go okay. to Leanpub, we've got these three themes that you can just choose and if you've got a if you've got a paid account you can also customize yep. your theme and under there there's basically a bunch of like cheesy like you know buttons and drop downs and stuff like that where you, where you can tweak things and we're always we're always we're open to adding was that,
1: was that for table <laughs> formatting was it
0: yeah. Yeah. And so we're, we're, yeah, we're, 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 we're definitely, we're definitely receptive, Uh, we're, I mean, but we won't, we, I guess what I'm saying is we won't necessarily do everything everyone asks us to yeah, do, yeah. Uh, but it's thank uh, you. Very, yeah. Thank you very much for sharing that though. I really, really appreciate that. It's good. Good to know. Um, Well, uh, Dion, thank you very much for taking some time out of I'm sure a beautiful day in Sydney uh, to talk to, talk to, talk to me and talk to our, our audience about uh, yeah, your career and your uh, approach to software development and team leadership and uh, about your book as well.
1: No, that's great. Thanks, Len. I appreciate the uh, opportunity to, to come on the show. Thanks very much.
0: And as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a LeanPub author yourself, please check out our website at LeanPub.com. Thanks.